preserving the history of Strategic Air Command, the Cold War, and aerospace artifacts. Welcome to the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Coming to you from the museum just off I-80 at exit 426. Now here's your host, Museum Marketing Director, John Leffler, Jr. Good afternoon, everyone. How are we doing? Glad to have you here. Appreciate it. My name is John Leffler. I'm the Marketing Director here at the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum. Um, we're doing a first right now. You're all a part of it. We really appreciate that very much. Um, if you have not already, we have a podcast for the museum, which we started uh, last year. Uh, we have about 15 episodes that are up right now covering a range of different topics. If you've had a chance to go visit and see the F-117 Nighthawk that we have out in restoration, we talk a lot about how we brought that back from the Tonopah test range, what our plans with that are. Also, this year, we're celebrating the 75th anniversary of Strategic Air Command. And for myself, um, it has been a fascinating journey to visit with the men and women who are part of Strategic Air Command and to learn their stories. And we're sharing those stories with our podcast. So really, if you do listen to podcasts, wherever you uh, would do that, you'll be able to find the uh, Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. And I would invite you to, uh, to check that out. But what we're doing today is uh, just basically a live audience podcast, which is gonna be kind of fun. So feel free to, to holler out. Um, Actually, don't do that. That would sound terrible in a podcast, wouldn't it? No, we're, we're going to have a... Uh, um, so we're going to be uh, visiting with uh, this guy, Nebraska's astronaut, uh, former NASA astronaut, Clay Anderson. Let me see that really quick there so everybody can hear you. I want to make sure that we get that taken care of. It's very possible that I was the one that... There you go. Houston, we have a problem. All right, there we go. Ashland, we have a problem. Please help me welcome the pride of Ashland, Nebraska, Clay Anderson. That's all you got? Golly. All right. So actually, speaking of podcasts, um, Clay has one now that we're going to jump into that here in just a little bit. But I wanted to start off. We've got our Father's Day car show. Fortunately, uh, after having to cancel last year, we're back. We've got all these amazing cars, over a hundred of them, through the museum. So I want you to think back. What was your first ride? What were you cruising around and terrorizing the streets of Ashland in? <laughs> a uh, 1972 blue Ford Pinto that my mother named uh, Veronica because it was her car. We, you know, growing up in Ashland, we didn't have a car. Uh, I don't think I had, I bought my first car from Old Mill Toyota in Omaha, Nebraska in 1983. And I bought a Toyota Celica Coupe GTS. Yeah. <laughs> With a moonroof. Yeah. It was my favorite car. I was going to say, that's a pretty nice car for It was, for but I paid for it. I bought it myself. And as growing up as a kid, uh, we always bought used cars. and. The first time we had a new car, my dad bought my mom a 1972 Ford Pinto. I think that one was wrecked. No, she got that one after she wrecked her Volkswagen Beetle because she was driving, she taught uh, in all the schools around the Ashland area. She was a speech pathologist, so she did speech therapy for all the kids in Greenwood and Wahoo and Soresco and Utan, and so she drove a lot of country roads. And she hit a patch of gravel 
and I think she was driving too fast, and she rolled her Volkswagen Beetle and crushed the top. And I remember Dad taking us down to downtown Ashland to show us the car, and Mom was very lucky she was still alive. So then came the 1972 Ford Pinto, before we all learned that all you had to do is touch the back end and it would go <laughs> Yeah, probably not the best design for, for a vehicle. I think Ford would like to have that one back. No, and I, I did go to prom in my junior and senior year with Dad's uh, Ford Torino. Yeah, it had the white um, vinyl top kind of half, and it was blue. And, you know, it was a stylish ride for... So, so question for you, why is it that, that Mom's getting all the little tiny cars and Dad's <laughs> getting the, uh, the land yachts? Uh, you'd have to have asked my dad, but... Um, <laughs> You know, we had, we had a, when we first, we had a Chevy with the fins on the back. I remember when I was a little kid, that was dad's car. And then he went to a Chevy, uh, um, not an Impala, but it was another big Land Cruiser. And then we got this used Ford Torino, which we had for quite some time. I think that's the last car he had um, before he passed away in 84. So I remember when I bought my car, my Toyota, and he looked at the sticker price, he said, my God, my house cost less than that. You, you're very active on social media, and it's one of the, one of the things that is, is great about you is that we, we can always find out not only what you have going on, but also your thoughts about what's happening with the space program today. And one of the hashtags, if you're familiar with, you know, using hashtags when you do social media, one of the hashtags that you always use, or one of them, is never bet against Elon Musk. That's correct. You're, you're a firm believer in everything that he has going on right now. So my question for you is, uh, when, when you have a few extra nickels laying around, have you, have you considered uh, getting yourself one of the, uh, the Tesla vehicles? No. <laughs> uh, so you're not, no, no betting on you getting one of those? No. First of all, never bet against Elon Musk does not mean I support everything he does, but I believe that his aggressive leadership is, is being helpful to commercial spaceflight. So that's why I say don't bet against this guy, right? Because the odds are good that he's going to pull it off. Uh, I can't say that with Jeff Bezos yet. I can't say that with Richard Branson at Virgin Galactic yet, right? You have, they have to demonstrate that they can do what they say they're going to do. And Elon, so far, has demonstrated that he says he can do what he says he's going to do. So with regard to a Tesla, uh, I'm not big on electric cars. Um, I get hammered a lot because people think astronauts have to drive an electric car for cl climate change and global warming and all that stuff. Uh, I'm a little more pragmatic. And I look at the overall electric car and the battery and where the power comes when you plug it into the wall every night, you know, all that stuff. And, and to me, the energy question is, is economic, right? Six to eight months ago, gas was what? Two bucks a gallon? It was in Texas. And today I filled a, my rental car, a Nissan Sentra, a little puny car, for 30 bucks because gas is almost $3 a gallon now. So, and it's gonna go, it's higher other places. So, to me, the energy thing is, is an economic uh, situation and we don't always address it that way. 
One of the things I wanted, I'm noticing some of the younger folks that are in the audience today, you've been here back in, in, uh, in Ashland in Nebraska for the last few days and we were fortunate enough and our education team was uh, fortunate enough to have you back for our Astronaut Academy, which is a one-time camp that we do, but we do it every summer for the kids. And I walked in when you were talking with the kids on Thursday afternoon and standing here listening to you speak, the question that popped into my head that I wanted to remind myself to ask you about today is there were kids sitting there looking up at you, clearly inspired, captivated by the stories that you were telling. And yes, there's always the question about how do you go to the bathroom in space? You go in your suit. That's, I mean, you could put money on the table right now that one of the kids is going to ask that question. And they're great questions. Yeah. But what really impressed me was just the way you interact with those kids and clearly help them and inspire them. My question for you is when you were growing up, when you were at that age, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, who was that person or who were those people that you locked in and said, this is what I want to do and this person is showing me the path right now? So that's a really good question and I'll segue just a little bit because I think he wants me to. Uh, my podcast is called The Making of an Ordinary Spaceman. So oh, we're going to get to that. Okay. I, I know. I'm Astro Clay, right? That's my hashtag or my moniker on social media. And I always hashtag myself as The Ordinary Spaceman because that was the title of my first book, sir, my memoir. And I also now am the Oracle of Outer Space. I love that one, right? I can't be the Oracle of Omaha, but I can be the Oracle of Outer Space. <laughs> this on you, are you is anyone out there hello hello is anyone out there you guys get that don't you okay the Stop, podcast that we're, must not be doing very well oh no right no I, I would I I would love to meet Warren I'd ask to borrow money so I could buy a Tesla <laughs> both of us but my podcast is about making who me who the person who I became and so when I talk to these kids uh, the story that's predominant in my brain is when I was nine years old. So raise your hand if you're nine years old. Eight, nine, ten. Come on, raise your hand if you're eight, nine, ten. Yeah? Yeah? So you're close to that age, right? So you guys are the same age that I was when my mom and dad got my brother Kirby and my sister Lori up on Christmas Eve in 1968 and plopped us down on the floor in front of a black and white TV. Do you know what a black and white TV is? Have your dad Google it, okay? And we watched on Christmas Eve, after midnight, the Apollo 8 astronauts go behind the moon for the first time in human history. So that was my hook. That's what I believed. That's what I remembered as the first thing that made me want to be an astronaut. But my mother, Alice, would tell you I was six years old. Any six-year-olds in here? She's pretty close to six, isn't she? Five, yeah. And my mom and I talked about me becoming an astronaut, so much so that in Ashland, Nebraska, in July, every summer, this summer as well, they're going to have a street carnival and a stirrup days. They're going to have a big festival, kind of. And they had back then they had bike races and they had talent shows. They had a pancake breakfast. They crowned the king and the queen over at Salt Creek, and they had a kitty parade. And that kitty parade, as a six-year-old, my mom put me in a hat box, and she cut a slot for my eyes and put a pipe pipe cleaner with a styrofoam ball so I could talk to aliens. And she wrapped every bit of me in aluminum foil. And so as a six-year-old, I walked in that parade as a Mercury astronaut. So 
those were the two things that, that mom remembers the six-year-old. I don't remember that part, but I remember the Apollo 8 guys, right? But I never had a hero. I never had a mentor until I actually got to NASA. But I watched my father and I watched my mother and I learned from them. They were hard workers. We didn't have a lot when we were kids. Um, but we grew up here in Ashland Greenwood and, and the school system and the educators here were pretty darn good. Um, they challenged me, they pushed me, and that's the idea of me being the ordinary spaceman. I'm just like you, and I'm just like you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you guys. We're the same. There's nothing special about me. I worked hard. Yeah, I was smart enough, but I'm not a genius. I didn't get straight A's. But hard work and a dream and perseverance and understanding that you don't have to be a genius and being true to who you are. I'm very true to the pride that I have of Ashland, Nebraska, and that I am the first and only Nebraska astronaut ever, ever. Man, I hope they figure that out and pick another one. <laughs> they should. Who are those educators? That, because you know you, you, you have your parents who clearly were supportive of you mm -hmm. being an astronaut, and that's so important. Because that's what, that's what drove the passion. But who were those educators that said, okay, Clay, this is what you want to do, and this is how you're going to get there? Because I definitely resonate with, with the idea of, you no, know, I was not a straight-A student, but you have, to, you have to grind. You have to work at it. Yeah. I don't think there were any teachers, you know, people tell me that I talked about that I would be an astronaut all the time. I don't remember that. Uh, people say I did it in high school and college. Uh, but the teachers that I had, they challenged me to be better, to be uh, a better individual, uh, to tackle challenging tasks. Betty Starnes was one, a music teacher at Ashland. Gene Walden, the band instructor. Uh, coach Bob Simpson and, and Dwayne Thrill, my football coaches. Barney Sutton, my basketball coach. Uh, Roger Peacock, my track coach. Those guys yelled at me. Those people yelled at me, right? When I wasn't doing what they knew I could do. They saw me here, I saw me here. And it was because of their push and their drive and their vision to see what I could become that I flew in outer space for 167 days. And a lot of those people aren't around anymore, um, but their legacy is Alice Rakes was another one. Alice was my eighth grade science teacher. And I tell everybody when you walked into her classroom, there should have been a sign at the top of her door that said, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. <laughs> right? She was tough. But she was fair. And I needed tough. Right? If school's easy for you, you need tough. You need more. You need, when I was in the fifth grade, I got in trouble all the time for yapping and talking because I got my work done too fast. So what did the teachers do? They went out and they found extra stuff for me to do. Where if I was bored, I got up and my assignments were done, I went to the little bookcase and I pulled out a card and I read about the Amazon Basin in South America. And then I took a little quiz about the Amazon Basin. When I was done with that one, I went and I looked in another and I learned about the Rocky Mountains and the geology and I took a quiz about that. So it takes a dream, perseverance, the understanding that you don't have to be a genius and being true to who you are and you have to have people helping you along the way.
Well, you're four episodes in now to the making of an Ordinary Spaceman podcast. And with what we've touched on so far, was that a part of the inspiration to have this podcast is thinking back on my coaches and my teachers knew that I could be here. I thought that I could be here, but you able to express that to a larger international audience that can listen to this podcast whenever they want and understand from your story that yes, it is possible. Well, actually the podcast was not my idea. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Pat and JT. They used to be on KQKQ in Omaha, 98.5. Sweet 98. Sweet 98. And they were, I didn't know them. I knew Jill, JT, because she went to high school at Ashland, but she was behind my, I was ahead of her. I was about four or five years older than she was. But we knew each other. And what happened was when I became an astronaut and I was assigned to fly and it looked like I was actually going to go into space, you know, they had me on the radio and then they had my mom on the radio and they treated my mom so well and with the utmost respect. Um, I can never thank them enough for that. And as I grew through the astronaut, my first mission and came home and then got assigned to a second mission and did that one, uh, we became friends and colleagues and I was on their show quite frequently whenever I could be because I just loved radio. And um, they came to me, they work at Herdat Media now, and Herdat Media and Pat and JT came to me and said, you need to do a podcast. And I said, well, do we? <laughs> and then we talked about, well, what should the podcast be about? And they said, what are you passionate about? And I said, I'm passionate about the people that helped me become the person that I am today. And that's when the making of An Ordinary Spaceman was born. So you will find, uh, podcast episodes eventually. I mean, we're dropping them all the time, but with my wife, with colleagues or classmates I went to Ashland High School with, uh, one of my teachers from high school, um, Chip Davis from Mannheim Steamroller, who's an integral part of my uh, astronaut career, it turns out, later in my career. Uh, we'll talk with my family, my son, my daughter, my wife, my uncle, my sister, my brother. And uh, you'll, you'll hear some fun stories. It won't be about how many engines the space shuttle has and what's the amount of thrust. It won't be about factors affecting climate change. It won't be about Elon Musk in the future. It'll be about how I became the person I am today and how they helped make that happen. Well, one of the first episodes of your podcast is a visit with your wife, Susan. And um, I, I believe that's that was by design. I mean, obviously, the, the first episode is, is you really setting the table for who you are, your life, what has happened. But that second episode, we bring in Susan. Yeah, uh, I'm very blessed to have my wife, Susan. And uh, the first episode is how we met. And when I got the call that said I was going to become an astronaut, and then we get into the Columbia mission when I was a family escort. And... Uh, you, you, most of you probably know the tragedy of the Columbia crew, and I was there for the whole thing. And those kind of stories are not stories that astronauts typically tell. Uh, it's emotional, it's truthful, uh, it's behind the scenes, and, it, and I think it's very impactful. So as Susan and I trace our journey together and our journey with our family, then we'll lace it in with also with times of well, what did you think of Clay when he was in high school, so-and-so and so-and-so, and, -so, and, -so, and they'll tell you. <laughs>
And sometimes it's like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. And it's good and it's bad. But it's, it's all fun. It's truthful. It's from the heart. And I hope you'll enjoy it. I hope you'll uh, check it out. Um, and then you can comment on it. You can send me tweets. You can send me Facebook comments. You can send me Instagram notes. And you can tell me what you think. Have a question? Guest request? Email marketing at sacmuseum.org. More of the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast coming up. When you become a member of the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum, not only do you enjoy unlimited admission to our world-class aircraft and aerospace museum, you help us preserve aviation history for generations, restore aircraft, create new exhibits, and educate youth in our wide variety of programs focused on science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Memberships are available for individuals, family, school teachers, and military. With your membership funds, you enable the museum to continue to grow and further its mission. Learn more about becoming a member of the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum at sacmuseum.org. Stay up to date with museum news and events. Sign up at sacmuseum.org for Flight Log, the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum e-newsletter. Back to the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. And we just have a few more questions here for this podcast portion before we're going to jump into a question and answer with Uh-oh. you all. So we'll, we'll get to that here in just a moment. But another one of the episodes of the making of an ordinary spaceman that I wanted to ask you about, um, you visit with some friends and talk about growing up in Ashland. My, my thought was, what do you feel... You know, you take a lot of pride in being from Ashland, Nebraska. That's not something that you shirk away from or you don't talk about you're from Nebraska. That's front and center, really, in any interview or anything that you talk about. What do you feel, looking back now on your career and where your career is going, the advantages were of growing up in Ashland, Nebraska? What did, what did you have over the others that were in the space program because of where you came from? Well, the small town aspect of this uh, everybody knew who you were and what you were doing. I mean, in second grade, my aunt, Kathy, lived across the hall from my second grade teacher. And when I threw a snake at Debbie Westover on the slide in the playground, you know, my mom knew about it, like, immediately. And I got in trouble. <laughs> and this is before text messaging. Yes. And then, you know, when I said a bad word on the playground and my mouth got washed out with soap, in school, you don't know we don't do that anymore. Oh my gosh, that would that would harm the children forever, right? But we don't do that stuff anymore. But those were the kind of things that the small town community brought forth, and everybody knew who my parents were. Everybody knew who my brother and sister were. They knew if we were in trouble. They knew if we were out late. They knew if we were in in a, in a dire situation if something was wrong, right? And so people took care of people. And I think that's one of the keys, not to mention the school system again and the fact that the teachers cared and they wanted you to become someone better than you thought you could become. Uh, And then the fellowship of my church family, coupled with my family family, coupled with my school family, eventually my college family, you know, all those things. And the work ethic in Nebraska is second to none. Um, I remember as a kid, I'd be sleeping soundly in my bed. I was a lifeguard at the Ashland Country Club with my brother and sister. And if I had an off day, my dad would come up and he'd shake my shoulder about six in the morning. He'd go, hey, son. Oh, dad, I got your job today. You're bailing hay for Harvey Jacobs. Oh, God. 
Harvey was a nice man, but he was the hardest guy to bail hay for. He drove the tractor in like fifth gear, and I mean, the bales weighed 7,000 million pounds, and it was hot. I mean, but dad, right? Get up and work, boy. <laughs> Get out there and do something. Don't just hang out. And, and those are important lessons. They were important lessons for me. I had a paper route in Ashland when I was eight years old. Opened my first bank account, Farmers and Merchants National Bank, with $6. Good lessons learned. Yeah. And, you know, you, you talk about growing up in Ashland. You mentioned earlier just all the sporting, the sports you were involved in. There was theater for you as well. There was music. I mean, obviously, a lot of opportunity. And I'm curious, that, that leads me to, before the podcast, there were the books. Mm -hmm. There's four of them. Letters from Space, The Ordinary Spaceman, A is for Astronaut, and It's a Question of Space. And my question is, where is, the, where is that inspiration to write? Come from? Were you journaling when you were in space? I mean, is, yeah. is this something you've always done and you just felt like I need to have the written word out? I think I'm always, I've always been a storyteller, but I didn't really write until I got to NASA and became an astronaut. And what, the way it turned out was I was living underwater in the Aquarius habitat south of Key Largo, Florida. And I was living in this place for two weeks. And NASA gave us a job as astronauts to communicate to the public with journal writing, right? And now, back then there was no social platforms, so it was just you went to the NASA website and you had to be an engineer and a genius to f navigate the NASA website. It was horrible. But I wrote my first uh, journal and it was t entitled, I Love Enya. Anybody listen to Enya? I love her. I love her music. And I got in trouble. NASA said, you can't support Enya. Well, why not? I like her. I like her stuff. You're an astronaut. You can't support her. You can't endorse her. What? I'm a government employee, right? Apparently I couldn't endorse her. So I had to change, they made me change the whole title. They made me change a bunch of stuff. But I mean, here I am living underwater, listening to Caribbean Blue with Anya singing in my earphones, looking at freaking hammerhead sharks sailing through by the window in the habitat. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. And so I wrote journals, one page, no longer than a page. They had to be educational. They had to be fun. And then when I got retired, well, I'm sorry, when I became an astronaut training for a space flight, I wrote a journal when cool things happened to me. When we went jogging and a Russian guy with a busted off fishing pole came by us running and said, Pashli, Pashli, let's go, let's go. And all of us astronauts started following a guy we didn't even know in Russia with a busted fishing pole. And he took us running through the fences all over the place and I was dying. And he took the fishing pole and he busted down limbs and he stray dogs. He made them run away. Pashli, Pashli. And then he ran up and down our line of astronauts speaking in Russian. Whoa. You can't make that stuff up. So I wrote a journal. And that journal, those journal entries that I wrote when cool things happened to me, when I was training, when I flew, when I came home, those became The Ordinary Spaceman from Boyhood Dreams to Astronaut, my first book. You know, it's, <laughs> I would say that when you were in high school and in college over at Iowa State, and we've forgiven you for that. <laughs> Nebraska just needs aerospace engineering program. Yeah, yeah, well, there you go. I mean, kind of call you the renaissance man, you know, when you were in high school. But I would say that now you're, you're, you're sort of turning into this multimedia mogul, uh, you know, between the, the, the podcast. Neither pays very well, let me tell you. <laughs> the books the books and, and also a lot of the public speaking that you do as well. 
And if you visit your, websti uh, your website, one of the, the topics that you'll cover, the title of it is Never a Commander, Always a Leader. So my last question for you before we turn it over to uh, the folks that have joined us here today for their questions is looking back on your career, never being a commander, always a leader, and thinking about what you're doing today and how you're impacting people. Does it even matter that you were never a commander? Uh, good question. So www.astroclay.com slash shop. Father's Day is tomorrow. Lots of cool stuff for kids. Great children's books. I'm sorry. Oh, I digress. Um, never a commander, always a leader is a topic. You know, when I go speak, sometimes I get asked to speak about leadership. And I don't, what do I know about leadership? I never, I'm not, you can go to school and you can learn about leadership, right? You can take courses at Harvard and some of the astronauts, when they were not flying, they went to Harvard and took the Harvard Business School leadership course, right? You can do all that, but I never did. And so the comment I had was that I've never been commander of anything. I would never command a shuttle. I wasn't a military pilot. But I could have commanded the space station, but I was too outspoken. <laughs> I, I told them when I thought they were making a boo-boo. Yeah, me? <clears throat> who, who would have thought? And so that idea that even though I was never a commander, I always worked to be a leader. And the other piece of that is that you have to be a good follower in order to be a good leader. I truly believe that. Because there are times in your life when you have to lead. But there are also times in your life, maybe more frequently for most, when you have to be a good follower. And good leaders are much, much better when they have good followers. And so that's the mantra that I carry with me. I'm not, I'm not a professionally trained leadership guru, right? Like uh, what Stephen Covey or some of these guys that write books that they sell, the leadership techniques for everyone or whatever they are. I don't have that. But I have enough life experiences and astronaut experiences where I do believe I lead. And I lead every day if I can. So, is it important that I was never commander? No. Does it hurt my ego? Yeah. Because now, if you watch NASA TV, every time you go to space, the space station's changing commanders all the time. Right? They're doing commander's handovers. <laughs> but hey, that's water under the bridge. So, what I try to do today is I try to lead young people like the people in this audience, and hopefully some of the elder people, some of the parents, some of the aunts and uncles, the, the friends and neighbors, the church teachers, the Bible study teachers, the softball coaches, the soccer coaches, right? If I can do something to give people an insight that may help them live their lives and share their talents, I'm doing just fine. 167 days in space, six spacewalks, 14 times you had applied to be a part of the, the, the program, and it was on the 15th that this journey continued, I guess you could say. It really never stopped. It, it's, it's, it's ongoing. Uh, Clay Anderson, thank you so very much for sharing here this afternoon. Thank you. Now, what we'd like to do right now, and I do have this microphone so everybody can hear your question. If you do have a question for Clay, we've got some time that we would like to set aside now for all of you. So, um, I've asked enough questions. I think it's, it's up to you, uh, any of you that would like to ask anything, and you can ask anything. 
So uh, who do we have out here that would like to uh, ask Clay a question? All right, here in the end. If I don't know the answer, I'll make something up. Hey, Mr. Um, which Space uh, Shuttle disaster were you part of the 86 one? No, 86 was Challenger, and I was in, a, in an office or in a conference room in Building 1 on the sixth floor at the Johnson Space Center. And they turned off or turned on all the TVs in the conference room and stopped the meeting to watch the Challenger launch. And when I saw it, I knew something was wrong. I, I wasn't an astronaut. I wasn't even close to being an astronaut. But, you know, you can just watch the TV and think, hey, that doesn't look right. And then I heard somebody scream in the hallway. And when I heard him scream in the hallway, and I heard the sobs. Um, it, the meeting was over. And it was the longest walk I'd ever taken from Building 1 back to Building 30. And through God's grace, I would be a family escort for Columbia in 2000, in what, 2000, February 3rd, 2001. And I was with the families. I took care of their kids. I took care of their spouses. Uh, I pushed them in the swings. I watched them go down the slides at the Kennedy Space Center. I went with one of the dads to buy his kid donuts in the morning of launch. And... Uh, you know, I was an intimate part of that, and it would turn out that I was also on the runway with them uh, on the day they never came home. So uh, there's a great chapter in my book called Hail Columbia that tells that story. If you listen to episode one of my podcast, you don't even have to listen to any more episodes than just that first one, and you'll hear about how it affected me. So Those families, are you still in contact with them? Yes, the NASA does a remembrance, you know, all three tragedies for NASA, the Apollo 1 fire that killed the crew, uh, the Challenger that killed the crew, and the Columbia, all happened within two weeks of each other in January, February. And so every year, there's a memorial service where we place roses on the, on the trees. When you die as an astronaut, you get a tree. And uh, they place roses on those trees, and then at Christmas, they light them up with white lights, and except for Gordo Cooper, he get no. Uh, Pete Conrad gets red lights, and when I die, I tell them I want red and white lights. Go be red. Walking in space is not walking in space. It's crawling with your arms. So, and it is the coolest thing I've ever done. I was out on my first spacewalk. I'd never done one before. I was outside for seven hours and 41 minutes with a dude from Russia. And my first thing I had to do to my friend from Russia, all week before the spacewalk, he'd done two Russian spacewalks before I ever got into the space station, right? And so he came to me the week before and he said, Clay, spacewalk, go slow, be careful. Okay, Fyodor, got it. He'd come a couple days later, Clay, spacewalk, go slow, be careful. Okay, I got it, see ya. So in the airlock, I'm the first one out on the day, right? The sun's behind the earth, so it's pitch black. You can't see anything. And I'm floating in my spacesuit over a three-foot hole of black. And they tell me to go outside, and I dive outside, and I start to hook all my tethers up. And then Fyodor, he comes outside. And the next thing I know, Fyodor's gone. He's gone. He took off. 
The guy that said, Clay, go slow, be careful. He's gone. So in my best Russian, I said, Fyodor, stop now. We need to do this together. Vrnutsia, return. Here he comes. And everything went great after that. I got another question over here for you, Clay. Go. Absolutely. You know, one of my podcasts, number two, episode number two, talks. Somebody asked me about faith. I believe in God. I believed in God my whole life. I'm a man of Christian faith. When I got to space and saw our planet from outer space, day after day after day, all I could think of was, "This is not random." You don't have to believe the way I do, but if you see your planet from outer space and you see how the rivers originate in the mountains and come down to the oceans and how the icebergs come off of Antarctica and how the deserts of, of the Sahara are just so beautiful, you think, all I can think of is it's not random. We're here with a purpose for a reason and I believe there's a higher power somewhere that helped put all this into place. If you don't agree with me, that's fine. But don't trash me on social media because you don't believe the way I do. Anyone? Anyone? Oh, oh in the front go. row. Oh, here we go. Good. She's my buddy. Just in time to start at work again. Excellent. How does the sun look in space? The sun in space looks just like you see it. It really does. So if you go outside at sunrise, you know how it gets really, really big and then it kind of, as it comes through the atmosphere, it's really big and then it gets back to what you think is normal size, right? That's what it looks like in space. The only thing that's different is I'm not looking through the atmosphere, right? So think, have you ever been in a swimming pool? And when you go underwater and you pop out and you got all that water on your head and you open your eyes and it's hard to see until you do this, right? You, know, you understand that part? That's what it's like. You're looking through the atmosphere, all that, all that pool water and stuff at the sky or whatever you're looking at. We don't have that. We just see through a clear sp outer space. And that's why the stars look prettier, the sun looks prettier, the moon looks way cool. It's, it's awesome. But that's why. Now, I wanted to jump back to, to the question before, and you, you had mentioned your faith. And, you know, before we came down here to play a talk today, we were kind of having this conversation upstairs in the break room a little bit about the challenges that you have. I think that, you know, we have you sitting here right now. We know your story. We see the other astronauts for NASA. You know, you've, you've watched about the Apollo, Mercury, Gemini missions. These are men and women that are superheroes to most of us. I mean, it's incredible what they do, but what I think gets lost in all of that is that they're still human. And they have fears, and they, you're in space for 167 days, and there's maybe a little bit of you know separation anxiety. How important was your faith to you during that time to get through those moments when it wasn't feeling like a superhero? Oh, let me tell you another Columbia story that relates this pretty well. So Columbia, the accident happened on a Saturday. I was in the Florida Kennedy Space Center for most of the whole day Saturday. And I came home to my home in Lake City, Texas sometime late Saturday night. And uh, when I walked in my house, my wife was with my son, he was six, my daughter was, or yeah, two. And 
my son was holding on to my wife's leg, and, and he said, Daddy, um, did they die? And I said, yeah, they died. And he said, did they have children? And I said, yes, they have children. And he said, did I know any of those children? And I said, yes, you knew several of them because uh, you played together with them. And he looked at me, and he let go of his mom, and he walked off and started to play. And I hugged my wife, and I said, I need to go to church tomorrow. And we did. And we went to Sunday school, our Sunday school class. And, of course, everybody at the church knew what had happened. And as I was sitting in the Sunday school class, I didn't talk. I was kind of lost within the moment. And the pastor of our church was teaching the Sunday school class. And one of, my, one of the families in the class looked at me and said, given what happened, we can't think of anyone better than you to have been with those families. And that's when I knew that my faith was going to be strong and it was going to get me through that because people believed in me. They believed what I brought to the table and that I was able to help because of my faith and because of my love of family. So uh, that was probably the biggest, biggest time my faith uh, pulled me through something. I would appreciate you sharing that. Very personal stories. And we, uh, for those of you, I know if you just walked in the uh, theater here right now, kind of a real quick reset. We are recording a lot of his podcast with Clay Anderson. And if you have any questions for Clay, uh, you can feel free to ask those right now. Following this, coming up at 2 o'clock, we're going to have autographs. Uh, book signings as well as uh, photo opportunities as well. Any other questions for for Clay? All right, we got one right over here. Perfect. Hold on. How much um, math did you have to work through to become an astronaut? Uh, how much math? So math and science are the two big things, right? If you want to be an astronaut, uh, if you go the military route, you have to know all that to fly planes and helicopters. Um, I took physics at Hastings College and got a bachelor's in physics, so the requisite math of calculus one, calculus two, um, differential equations, and all that stuff you take. Um, some was more fun than others. Uh, differential equations was <laughs> uh, But then I got to Iowa State, getting a master's degree in aerospace, and I took advanced calculus. Oh my gosh. I kicked my butt behind. That was my first D I ever got in my life. But I took it again because I had no choice and got an A. I had a different teacher who wasn't a jerk like the first guy. Because <clears throat> I went into his office, you know, I was struggling with advanced calculus and I knew I was struggling, right? And I went to class, I never missed class. So you go to college, don't miss class. That's one way to succeed. But I worked every single problem in the back of the book, right? Each, each chapter has problems. I worked every one of them. I can show them to you if you go to League City, Texas, up into my storage place, I'll pull them all out and I'll show them to you because I kept them all. And I worked every single one. I went in, I had a C in the class or something, or a D in the class going into the final, and I said to the professor who was about 26 years old from UCLA with a personality of a wooden stick, and I said, what do I got to do to pass this, get, get a C in the course? And he goes, good luck. 
and that was it, right? So I failed or got a D. So I came back the next time and I had a better instructor and I still worked every problem again in the book. I, I put the other piece away and worked every problem again. I can show you those too. And survived advanced calculus. And you know, the funny thing is though, as you get to NASA as an aerospace engineer, you don't do much of that, right? You really don't, because the computer does it for you. And, and your brain has to be smart enough to know garbage in is garbage out, right? And if the computer program is working and correct, you have to know that when you put the right stuff in, you have to be able to look at the answer and make sure it makes sense and is correct and, and validates your understanding of physics and orbital mechanics and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's a lot of math, but it's not that bad. I mean, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Well, you know, a big part of what we do here at the museum is our STEM programming, which you have been very helpful coming. We talked about the Astronaut Academy earlier. Um, but for those, you know, when you hear that word STEM, you might not know exactly what we're referring to, just simply an acronym for science, technology, engineering, and math. But I know that for you, Clay, there's an, an another letter that's going into STEM now that we're actually calling it STEAM. So yes, you have the science, technology, engineering, art, and math. And we've had this conversation before in looking at your, uh, your books, Letters from Space, A is for Astronaut, your children's books. Art is something that's very important to you, the arts in general. Absolutely, I play the piano, I play the trombone, I played the organ in my church in uh, Webster, Texas for many years. Uh, I sing, I've sung in many weddings, I've sung at funerals, and uh, I, I was in drama in high school. Uh, I played J.B. Bigley in, in How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Stand, old Ivy, stand firm and strong. Remember that? Some of you remember it. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, it is important. Anyone that goes into art class and puts an easel up and starts to paint with the various types of paints, that's chemistry, right? How does the paint interact? How do you mix the paint colors? How do you get from uh, tempera paint to oil base to watercolor and how does it react to the surface that you're painting on, right? That's all chemistry. And every time I picked up my trombone, I went right? Or played the piano and the hammer hits a string that's tightened to a different tension, that's physics. And I did a really cool panel in Austin, Texas at South by Southwest a couple years ago with Leanne Womack, the country western singer, and a guy named Barry Zito. Barry Zito was a major league baseball pitcher for the San Francisco Giants and the uh, Oakland A's. And he's now a musician in Nashville. And so here I am with those two people and Chanel Jones from Good Morning America as the moderator and little old me. And we're talking about why we need to keep arts in school. And I'll tell you what, if you're, you got kids going to school and you hear your school board's going to get rid of, of arts and music and PE, you better be down there banging on the desk the next day at their next meeting and you better be screaming at them to stop because that's silly. And to me, arts is a huge piece of this. And how do, you, how do you motivate a kid? Do you give them more math problems? Or do, you see them, or do you see them listening to their iPhone and you ask them, well, what are you listening to? Oh, I'm listening to uh, Shanita O'Connor. Or I'm listening to uh, Clay Travis or whatever. I don't even know what their names are anymore. But. <laughs> But you're listening to somebody and you're listening to music, right? Or 
What do you like to do? I like to sketch anime. I like to draw anime characters. I like to draw flowers. I like to draw landscapes. Those are hooks for kids, right, to find a way to get them motivated. And I believe all teachers can't save every kid, but if you look for hooks like that, you can find ways to pull them in, to pull them into your little sphere of influence and help them get from where they think they can be to where you know they can be. And that's important. Other questions for Clay? Looking around the thing, we got another one over here on this side, all right? And just a reminder that coming up uh, here at two o'clock, we're gonna have an opportunity visit with Clay just right outside the theater, autographs, photos. Hey Clay, um, I think we were probably born about the same time, I'm not sure. No, you're a lot younger than me. <laughs> so, I, I'm an old uh, chaplain, retired Air Force and everything, but just, you know, really resonating with a lot of what you're saying. And what I can just coddle, I call it the coddling culture that we have today. You talk to a lot of kids, uh, interact with a lot of their parents. How do you break through? I mean, so I had a 71 Pinto, red, okay? Nice. Uh, yes, I built hay, yes, I walked beans. Uh, paper route when I was nine. Again, dad came home and said, guess what, you have a job now. And I'm like, I'm nine, yeah. can I do that? Yeah. So. Um, Could have been an astronaut. Yeah. Yeah, well, first of all, I, I'm a firm believer in family, and not every family can be nuclear, right? But having a dad who's around and who is a dad is really important, but we can't have that for everyone. I, I totally get that. So that mom has to be strong and has to be tough and, and have to, has to have fortitude because it's not going to be easy. So family first. I think we, we miss on the faith part these days. I think that um, too many families have pulled away from the, the faith-based uh, lifestyle. I'm not sure how to make that better, but those of us that believe have to be willing to be examples. And you know, I've had a, a very wealthy friend and colleague of mine yap at me because he says, you have a platform. I said, I know I have a platform. He says, well, you, you can't say what you're saying. Yes, I can. Well, I'm not saying what he wants me to say, what he thinks I should say, but I have to have the courage to stand up and say that I believe in God and that I saw my faith get stronger every single day that I was in space. And then somebody came out and it was in a podcast episode and somebody came out and, and, the, and the title is astronauts should believe in God. Why not? Why can't we? You know, I believe in the Huskers. And that may not be good the last several years, right? But I still believe in them. So is somebody going to yap at me? Yeah, some Iowa Hawkeye guy, probably. But, I mean, you have to have the courage to stand up for what you believe in, and you have to set an example. And, I, and, and that's why it's so important. When you bring your two girls here, you get it. You understand that we have the power to change a life. You understand we have the power to change a life. And you do too, right? Well, how do we do that? We have to set an example. We have to set standards that they have to live up to and achieve. We have to get on them when they don't do the right thing. And they have to know what the right thing is and what the wrong thing is. That's why I love Nebraska so much. 
I find more of that here than I find in other places. And I really believe I've lived in Nebraska and Texas. I think I've lived in the two best states in the union. Um, although when I moved from Nebraska to Texas, I did raise the IQ in both states. <laughs> so how do we do that? It's tough. It's tough in today's world when kids are on the internet all the time and they're looking at iPads and iPhones and video games. There's nothing wrong with those things in moderation, and, but, but I, I think it's better that they're outside throwing a ball or swimming in the lake or swimming in a pool or riding their bicycle or, or kicking a can down the road or hitting it with a stick or throwing snowballs at people. You know, I mean, there's lots of ways that kids can be uh, involved or entertained and it doesn't have to be electronic. So I would encourage you all to spread the word be great examples and require, require of your kids and your family. We have time for uh, maybe one or two more questions. Anybody else right over here? Okay. I'd like to get your uh, general thoughts on what they're calling the new space race, uh, specific to the US and China. Obviously, I know there's funding issues here in the States relative to NASA and other things, just some general thoughts. So general thoughts on the space race with the United States, Russia, China, India, all the, all the countries that are playing and dabbling there. First of all, Clay has the three Ds of spaceflight. Danger, difficulty, and dollars. Okay, three D Clay's three Ds of spaceflight. Uh, we can't get anywhere as the United States. It's too expensive. We have to partner around the globe, and I think that's working well. We set a great example with Russia with the International Space Station. I'm a big believer that China, they just sent uh, three Taikonauts to the, their new space station, I think we ought to partner with them in space. They're communists, I understand, but so we can look beyond that when we're partnering in space because that brings detente to Earth. If we're working with their Taikonauts in space, the odds of us fighting each other are way less, and the ability for us to maybe negotiate stuff with them and their leadership might be better. Uh, can't be much worse, right? So uh, commercial space flight is good. It's good for America. It's good for humans that want to see Earth from space someday and get the same perspective that I got. I believe firmly that if people got three days in space and a month in a third world country, their perspectives would change so much that the Earth would be a better place. So uh, I watch those guys with excitement. I call them, my hashtag is Castronauts, right? They got the money, so they're flying. But it's important to remember that it's their money. I worry what's going to happen when they kill someone, right? That's, so if they have their Columbia, what happens next? But as far as I go with generalization, commercial space flight's an important thing. Uh, it's going to lead just like Orville and Wilbur at Kitty Hawk in 1903 flew their right flyer 122 feet, which, by the way, is the length of a shuttle from the nose to the tail. Little trivia for barbettes. Uh, but just as they were standing on Kitty Hawk in 1903, who'd have thought that they could get on a huge airliner and fly from Houston, Texas to Abu Dhabi in Saudi Arabia? So we're at that step, stepping stone, right? We're at that point where one day he may be able to buy a ticket and hop on a vehicle and spend a few days in space. All right, time for one final question. Good, here we go. 
So I know that you're a pilot, but is the training at all different when you're in the and when you're part of uh, like national programs, or is it very similar? Or is it so I'm only a pilot of a small little plane like that, but. When I became an astronaut, I got to fly in the back seat of a jet that broke the sound barrier and did loop-to-loops and barrel rows my first flight. You need a copy of The Ordinary Spaceman from Boyhood Dreams to Astronaut because the first chapter in my book is called First Flight. When I went on my zoom and boom ride. So yeah, it's different. When you become an astronaut, you're flying with jet jockeys, guys that flew the F-18, the F-14, the F-22, the helicopters, the Huey, the, you know. And, and those guys, those guys and gals are amazing. Guys is a Nebraska term that means everybody. But they are amazing, and they went through way more training to fly than I did, but I got to the point where I could fly the plane from the back seat. From 500 feet above, I could be in command, and I actually did a touch and go at Ellington Field. I wasn't supposed to, but they let me. And I went, dropped the nose, full power. And away we went, and I about wet my pants. I just did a touch and go. Oh, God, I did a touch and go. Oh, 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 oh. And then I got off, and we, when the plane landed, I hopped out of the plane, I ran to my phone, and I called my wife. So I did a touch and go. I did a touch and go. I was so excited. It was so cool. And you could do it, too. All right, we're going to take this party outside. If you would please uh, help me in thanking Clayton Anderson. For being Thank here. you all. And happy Father's Day to all of them. This has been the Strategic Air Command at Aerospace Museum podcast. Email marketing at sacmuseum.org for more information questions and suggestions. Learn more about events, programs, and exhibits at the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum at sacmuseum.org.